Lit House is a podcast from the House of Literature in Oslo, presenting adapted versions of lectures and conversations featuring international writers and thinkers. In this episode, the American writer Jonathan Safran Foer talks with the Norwegian writer and journalist Bjorn Gabrielsen about his latest novel, Here I Am. The conversation took place on August 16, 2017. This uh, this book, Jonathan. Here I am. It's 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 very funny and it's very touching. But that's that's what I tell all the authors. Uh, but but I also find it uh, really actually scary. Not so much in the narrative sense, but in, in the implications. I might be wrong, but but I thought we'd start off with just um, summarizing the story. It's it's about a family, the Blocks, who to start with seem really nice. They're the kind of family I wouldn't mind sitting next to on, on a delayed plane. Uh, but then things go wrong. Well, first of all, thank you for coming. I'm, I couldn't be more happy to be here, really. It's been, um, I think, 14, 12, 13 years since I was last here. Um, it's been long enough for for me to be unable to place exactly how long it's been, but... Um, I'm just, I was looking forward to this trip very much, and I'm grateful to be here. You might take for granted how special it is to have a building like this and an institution like this, but we have nothing like this in New York, and um, no American cities have anything like this. Um, there are a couple in Germany. Maybe there's, you'll find one or two scattered elsewhere in um, Europe, but it's a really special place, and it's an extremely special place for a writer in particular to visit, so... I am grateful for its existence. I'm grateful to be the beneficiary of it tonight. Um, I think the family is no less pleasant to be with because of what happens to them. And in a way, that points to what's so tragic about them. It's not as if they are good people who suddenly become scary. They are people who live a good life that suddenly becomes scary. And what's most scary about it or what's most tragic about it is that there aren't villains. There's no major act of deceit, or at least the act of deceit that's described in the book only allows them to acknowledge the very small, very, very small and um, unintentional acts of deceit that have been accumulating over the course of decades of being married. It's a family, um, I think or a relationship specifically between a husband and a wife that is like um, many relationships. I, my, I sense this if only because so many people come up to me and say, like, wow, that's exactly what we're like, or how did you know what we talk like? Or as somebody asked me in an interview earlier today, do you think there's any other kind of couple than this kind? <laughs> so... <laughs> Um, what's scary that happens to them, and I agree with you, it's really, it's more terrifying than an apocalyptic novel because it's a, a quiet and almost invisible apocalypse. It's two people who are thoughtful, are um, caring, are intelligent, and, and like, crucially are in love with each other, who become closer and closer as time passes on the level of domestic activity. Like, what, what kind of groceries do we need? Oh, you don't even have to tell me. I already know. And don't forget to pick up. Yes, 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 I already know that. And we need this thing, and I'm on it. And the piano teacher already paid. And, you know, they, they're very good at anticipating the workings of this kind of universe that is the family. And they're also very good at talking to each other about things that happen on the level of like living and doing, like how was your job today? It was pretty good. This person said that. Oh, I can't believe he said that. Here's what you should really think. And they support each other like that. They're very good, like in the kitchen. They're very good in the living room. They're very good in the dining room, and they're very bad in the bedroom and in the bathroom. <laughs> and so, what I mean by that is not simply, although I also do mean this, like having sex and going to the bathroom. What I mean is when it becomes like primitive, 
and about bodies and about things that one might be ashamed of or about desires for one another or for things in the world, for some reason, as they become closer up here, they lose the ability to communicate down there. And nobody could ever put their finger on when it happened, or you'd have to have 100 million fingers to do it, because it just happens a little tiny bit every single day in completely plausibly deniable ways. You know, Like, oh, I feel odd. I feel a little bit odd that he, we got into bed and he turned away. But it's no big deal because like he likes to sleep on that side and I also know that he was like battling a cold so why would I blame him or mention it? Except the next day when you make coffee you think or you don't even think you just make coffee for yourself. And like he'll make coffee when he comes down not recognizing that it's like a plausibly deniable act of withholding or measuring and and when he comes down, he gets the newspaper, and he normally leaves that section for her. But like, he's just going to read it this morning because he doesn't have a lot of time, and he's interested in an article. And then like, one thing leads to another, and it becomes chess instead of what was effortless in the past. And also the, the main character, or one, uh, Jacob, the, um, uh, the husband in this case, he's always second-guessing himself and everybody else. And he has a phone conversation with his wife, and she says, do you want to be that guy? Do you want to be that person who always makes jokes, always cuts everything off? Well, she accuses him. Okay, so there's Jacob and Julia there in their early 40s. Jacob maybe aspired to be some kind of artist. It's not exactly clear, but he now works on a TV show, and it's very successful. It's kind of like Game of Thrones something, but he's just not really into it, but he gets paid well and it's recognized, so he does it and he'll do it for as long as it goes and secretly has his own project, which is to work on a, a TV show about his family, which he'll never share with anybody because it would feel like a betrayal. And Julia, his wife, had ambitions to be a really great architect and design museums and war memorials, but now does a lot of like kitchen and bathroom renovations, usually for friends. And they both are aware of a distance between who they thought they would be and who they became. So when she um, accuses him of sort of second-guessing things as, or of using humor as a kind of sacrificial substitute, I think what she's really saying is, why do you always have to be elsewhere? Like, can't you just be here? So humor is one way to be elsewhere. Like, you say something serious to me and I deflect it by making a joke about it. But there's lots of ways to be elsewhere. And each character in the book has a different way to be elsewhere. Like they have a son, Sam, who's 13, who plays this virtual world kind of game on his computer. Julia herself is always designing houses that she might maybe one day live in, although she never will. But it's a fantasy and the indulgence of the fantasy allows Jake, her. Jacob never played in a band but he designs T-shirts for them, which right. he wears. Right. And he has, the, so there's two crises in the book. The second one you alluded to, which is an earthquake in the Middle East. The first one, which happens right at the beginning of the book, is a discovered, discovered sexting on a cell phone. And Jacob has been elsewhere, mentally, sexually, with um, another woman. Although, as with the T-shirts for a band he never played in, it seems that he never had any physical relationship with this person. And that's another thing that Julia confronts him with. You know, that, you know, I have lost my respect for you both because you've strayed from our marriage, from the devotion that we declared to each other, but also because you couldn't even have an affair with her. Exactly, because <laughs> the reader does get upset about this. Why does he never do anything? Why does he never follow through? This um, there are four generations of men uh, in your novel, and they all. Uh, so there's Isaac, the uh, the survivor, uh, and then there's his son Irv, and then there's his son again, Jacob, who's you know, an aspiring artist who you know now at least at least he makes money, and then there are his three sons, and they're all. Uh, it's hard not to you know, to think that they're all quite stereotypical of their generation of. Uh, of secular American Jews, 
uh, you know, even down to the names. So the, the second generation, Irv, he has the kind of name that was given to help Jewish kids pass into society, but it became a joke because it became such a Jewish name. Um, uh, did, did you think about this when you created them? I'm going to make them into stereotypes, even though you know, giving them very, very finely textured uh, individual lives, or, or did this just happen? I did think about it. I didn't think about the names, although that's a very good point, and I agree with you. Um, they have sort of generally, generationally appropriate names that do, to some extent, reflect this like movement, this like responsiveness to history. Mm-hmm. If I really had thought about it as much as you had, um, I would have named, you know, Irv would have been Irv, then Irv's son might have been something like Jacob, and then Jacob's son would have been something like Dylan. Right. <laughs> you know, like one of these names that's sort of like free of gender association, free, like kind of alludes to Bob Dylan, but it also is sort of like maybe could be a girl's name and it's, it's cool and it's not really Jewish, even though Dylan was Jewish, even though Dylan's right. name wasn't really Dylan, yeah. you know? Um, so that would have been something, that's something to think about in my next life. <laughs> but I, I definitely thought of the characters as types and I always think of my characters as types. Right. When somebody says to me, well, would a 12-year-old really talk like that? And I just think, who cares? Like, uh, you know, a journalist cares if a 12-year-old would talk like that. A journalist writing journalism. Not, not, I don't mean a journalist acting as a literary critic, but like a journalist's job and ambition and calling in the world is to reflect accurately what the world is like so that readers will know what the world is like in terms of like real-world reference and facts and information. And there's never been a moment in history when that's a more important job. I mean, journalists in America are saving America as we speak. Um, but a novelist has a very different kind of job, which is to convey a truth that doesn't have reference in the world in terms of facts, but in terms of experience. And for something to feel true, sometimes, often, you have to depart from a journalistic truth. So in order to create a character who's 12 years old who feels true to you, you know, I... I could go to a playground and take dictation from a 12-year-old, and it would be unassailably true in, in that specific sense. But first of all, it might not be interesting at all. And um, secondly, and oddly, you might read it and say, I know that this is a 12-year-old because I know you took dictation, but to be honest, it doesn't feel like a 12-year-old. So there's this weird distance between what we know to be true and what we feel to be true, and a novelist writes toward or should write toward, I think, what feels to be true. And so sometimes in the interest of writing what feels to be true, you write toward types, or you write caricatures, or you write mythologies. You know, Some of the most lasting works of literature, like the Greek myths or the Odyssey, have absolutely no relationship to truth, or the Bible, for that matter, have no relationship to a journalistic truth whatsoever, and yet have survived as long as they have because they obviously experientially strike a chord in us. Like the, um, uh, the Israeli cousin who's you know, almost taken out of a Jackie Mason routine because yeah. he talks about how there are no tough Jews, the only tough Jews are the ones in Israel. I thought they were Puerto Ricans. Uh, and, and your you know, quintessential Jewish cousin is very much like that. He's, you know, he's hairy, he's successful, he's... Uh, he has no subconscious. He, he just is. Mm. So a lot of times what I end up doing with my characters is they start, and not just me, but they start a certain way and they end differently. And there are reasons why I think it can be good to start somebody with a kind of the loudest version of himself. Like I did it in my first book, Everything is Illuminated with Alex, who starts as a kind of almost a pure style and then moves towards something that's more humane. And the reasons to start with pure style are, there, there are a couple of them. One is to like very, very quickly with just a few gestures, like capture how the person is an embodiment of something, but also to make a reader like the person or make a reader sort of want to go along for the journey. Um, it's not a small commitment that you ask of a reader when you write a book. You know, 
if I can't tell you how many TV shows I've watched that I've known were complete pieces of shit after 30 seconds. But I think like, ah, 30 minutes, an hour, I'll have a beer, I'll eat some popcorn. What, what's an hour of my life? But especially because nothing, not a, nothing special is being asked of me. You know? Um, something special is asked of readers. Not only time. You know, I, I can't imagine how long it takes somebody to read this. But also... Uh, like a, a level of participation and complicity in the creation of the book. So I think it's not the, like, it's not exactly making a concession, but it's, it's the same reason that, okay, for my kids' birthdays, I um, design like very, very elaborate invitations. I inherited this from my mother. She used to do that too. Um, I probably spend more time, without exaggeration, working on my kids' birthday invitations um, certainly than I do writing in the month of their birthdays. <laughs> I'm probably, like, that's probably saying a lot of things at once, but right. <laughs> it's very important to me. But in, invitation, it's important to me for a lot of reasons. One is because there's a, like a lesson being conveyed, which is, you know, you could be one of those people who just like uses paperless post. I don't know if you have that here. Where basically you email invitations that are utterly thoughtless, made by some corporation that's just trying to buy advertisements and take your money one way or another. Email has absolutely nothing in the world to do with your family or your child or what the party's about. And yes, you'll get RSVPs emailed to you, and it's very efficient. But efficiency isn't the highest ambition in life. Or... You can spend a couple of days doing it and have like the greatest birthday invitation ever made. And people, you know, the child will hopefully feel reflected and expressed by it. Like this has something to do with me. This is not generic. And the people being invited, being invited will say, this person took care. And because of that, like care is contagious. Hmm. The books that I love are the books when I read them and I know that the author loved them. You know, like the author's investment is contagious. And so writing has that quality or can have that. Because you do offer the reader uh, a lot of um, Easter eggs. You know, whoa, there goes, you know, a long segment on sign language, which turns out to be you know, pretty funny. Um, the sign for Jew is this. And uh, Julia is uh, offended. That's. And misogynistic and anti-Semitic at the same time, <laughs> and, uh, uh, or, 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 or there's a magician, or there, and you have quite a lot of uh, um, quite a lot of commandments actually. There are quite a lot of rules uh, in your book, and, and the reader goes, "Hey, you know, a new set of rules." And there's because there's one that Jacob thinks of when he seems that when he his wife gave birth, they got you know, some pamphlet or some information on what to do with the kids set up as Ten Commandments. You know, be careful with the fontanelle. And, uh, and the last commandment is, never believe this is going to last. Um, how, how do you think when, when you include these things? Do you, do you go around in your day thinking, hey, I could use this? I think that I might do that without being aware of it. You know, there are a lot of things that I do without being aware of them, as I'm sure is true for you. You know, there's like a whole part of the brain that is constantly operating and doing work that you're not in control of and you're not aware of. And I would say it's 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 somewhat rare, if if maybe it's very rare, that I consciously say, Oh, that's an interesting thing, I'm gonna jot it down and use it. That almost never happens. And when I write, I almost never intentionally put things there. Like, besides being Jewish, the notion of Easter eggs doesn't mean anything to me. Like, I, 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 I just don't... I mean, first of all, I don't believe in a relationship between the writer and reader where a writer has some kind of meaning and encodes it or hides it mm. with the hope that a reader will decode it or find it. It just seems condescending to me, and 
And at the very, very best, what I will be conveying is what I already know. And I know what I know, and it's not that interesting. But I also know that a lot of things like happen to me and move through me in the course of 10 years that are really profound. And I don't always have like a grip on what they are, but I have some sort of intuitive sense that they're valuable. So like the easiest way to describe this is to tell you how I work on a day-to-day basis. Mm-hmm. Usually what happens is I, whenever it is I'm able to start working, I will devote the first hour or two to um, something that I think will have no use in my book, in a story, just like something that strikes me as interesting. So it may be something that I've just like picked up on the subway or I read or I heard on the radio. Sign language that you mentioned happened to be an example of it. Um, magicians you mentioned happened to be an example of it. Checkers. Chess and checkers happened to be an example of it. If you were to read the book, now that I've told you it, you'll, you'll start to see. But um, the, the, the commandments of a newborn is an example of it. So I'll sit there and I'll say, I'm working on this book. There are these characters. There's a plot. But let's just not worry about that for a minute. Like, then I will really just sit down and think, what am I thinking about right now? Like, even if it's, I teach. And I will often say to my students when they start to seem flustered, I'll say, like, just give me the bad answer. Give me the bad version. Don't worry so much about what the good version is. Like, the bad version will be useful. And then we can talk about it and make it better. But without a version, there's nothing to grow. You know? So like, what's the bad version? So then in the mornings when I'm writing, I say, what's the bad version? I look around the room and I'll think, okay, there's a podium. That doesn't do anything for me. Maybe it would for somebody else, but it doesn't for me. Like, this curtain doesn't do anything for me. These lights don't really do anything for me. Um, like an illuminated exit sign, maybe. Maybe there's signs. Or like the slope of the audience going up. Okay, I know there's something about that. And like I know in the old days, the stage used to go up. You know, the seats were flat, mm-hmm. which is why they call that upstage and downstage. Mm-hmm. Uh, at least in America, that's what in theater in America, this is referred to as downstage, that's upstage, because it used to literally be up. And then thinking like, hmm, that's interesting. I wonder if, like in the old days when they had a table and two chairs with like the front two legs of the chairs have to be longer than the back two chairs, two legs, in order to just simply appear balanced on a stage that was designed like this so that the seats could be flat. And and just like think about it for a little bit. And like what happens to that furniture after the show goes down? Does it go to somebody's apartment and they have to like prop it up with books? Like when Lincoln was assassinated, I know that he was in a box like off to what was called stage left. And John Wilkes Booth jumped onto the stage and fell, and he actually broke his leg. Did he break his leg because the stage was like tilted like this? So you can like, if you start going with it, just things happen. And I do that until I'm exhausted, until there's nothing left, which usually takes like an hour, let's say, or two hours. And then I go back to the beginning of what I was really working on. And I think like the distinction between what one is really working on and the bullshit that just comes up in your mind is usually completely inverted. And the bullshit is what you're really working on, and the other stuff is what you, out of a sense of guilt or obligation, have committed yourself to. So then I will go back to the thing I think I'm really working on, and then what I do is I go back to the beginning of whatever long section I had been working on for that week, so a chapter, let's say it's 50 pages, and I go back to the beginning of it and I read all the way through it, and I edit as I go. And I hope to move, advance it by a page or two. So I'm always editing. Like I don't do drafts of books. I just edit as I go. It's a little like the, um, you know, the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. They say that the painters, when they get to the end of it, go back to the beginning right. because the sea air is so corrosive that it's already started to eat away at the paint yeah. from where they started. So it's, they're literally constantly painting it, just like I'm constantly editing, and then. When I get tired of that, so six or seven minutes after beginning, um, or when I have to go pick up my kids, I'll look back at the thing in the beginning, the theater, the slant, the chairs, Lincoln. I think, is there any chance that has anything to do with this book? And at the beginning of writing the book, like the first year or two, it, it very rarely does. 
Every now and then it will, but usually it doesn't. And I'll just put it in some file on my computer. And then as I get toward the end of the book, every single day it does, because my subconscious, or my conscious rather, mind understands what my subconscious mind was doing. You don't think about slanted stages in Lincoln for no reason at all. You don't, in the same way that you don't dream about whatever you dream about for no reason at all. It might be very elusive. It might be hard to describe. You may never understand the meaning of it, but it's worth believing that there's some meaning there. And the further I get into the book and the better that my conscious mind understands what it is that I'm working on, the better able I am to recognize all these other workings, like the bullshit, and how valuable it is. And the, I mean, I would probably say without exception, everything I'm most proud of in this book was the result of that work mm. in the beginning of the day. But you say you, even though you don't you know, organize a treasure hunt for the reader, because that, that would be condescending, the, the reader you know, can't help himself. He's always going to think the other way around. We even do that with stuff which is not mediated, with the you know random occurrences in everyday life. We think, well, you know, this can't be a coincidence. You know, there must be a reason. Why? Why did I lose both my keys and my wallet on two separate days? Um, so there's stuff like uh, um, the the main character who, as the book go, goes on, the reader gets a bit upset. You know, why? Why is he so passive? Why does he? Why is he such a dreamer? Why doesn't he take care of? But at one point, he actually does go into a lion's den, a lion's cave. He's egged on by his uh, uh, by his cousin, and you start thinking, you know, there's a lion, and this you know, has to be biblical, or, or your title. As you know, you must have been asked before. Your book was published at about the same time as Leonard Cohen's latest album came, and you both evoke the same prayer. Uh, why did you choose this title? It was in a couple of other places at the exact same moment as well. Like mm -hmm. The show really? Transparent, I don't know if that made it here mm -hmm. or not. It's, it's a really, really great show, really great. Um, and there's an episode in which this character has a whole here I am, he nanny, as in a biblical, mm -hmm. biblically elusive way. Um, so I don't know exactly what you're asking. Are you asking, like, was there something in the collective subconscious that we were all tapping into? Or are you asking, was I intending? Yeah, what, what, yeah, what, what were you thinking? What were you thinking? Um, the poet W.H. Auden said, I look at what I write so that I can see what I think. Mm. And that's my experience. Mm. I, I wasn't thinking. I wrote something, and that showed me what it was that I was thinking. Or I wasn't thinking in the sense of laying plans and executing them. I was thinking much more intuitively. And um, it, I mean, it, I know that this could sound naive or like I'm protesting too much or something, but it's not naive. It's, it's a very willful act to repress a certain kind of questioning or a certain kind of intention or intellectual vigilance in favor of intuition and just doing it. It's hard to do that. Um, frankly, I think that's harder than exerting control over everything. Um, one of my favorite sayings about writing is, a bird is not an ornithologist. It's actually not about writing, it's just a general statement. Yeah. Um, and, you know, because you do... I think there's a confusion that sometimes takes place because writing is the only art form that is critiqued in its own language. So if we went to the Munch Museum, we, it's highly unlikely that we would leave and like draw little paintings and show them to each other. Yeah. Uh, if we went to a concert, unless we got insanely drunk, it's unlikely that we would come out singing to each other. Um, but when people critique literature, they critique it in language. And I think that inspires a misunderstanding, that the critique is more similar to the thing than it really is. Mm. Whereas I think of like the intellectualizing or the, the like sort of critical thinking that's applied to literature having as much in common with literature as like physics does with playing basketball. Mm. You know? It's true that when a basketball player shoots a ball, 
there's like an exit velocity and his anatomy is, or her anatomy is doing certain things and there's a trajectory that the ball travels and there's the rims, you know, tautness has something to do with whether or not it goes in or bounces out. But a basketball player, is, it's extremely unlikely that a basketball player is thinking about those things because a basketball player is too busy doing those things. And when I write, I feel like I'm too busy doing them to... Well, the sports journalists, to justify their existence, they need to have, you know, to memorize all the other kind of, um, uh, of dunks that other basketball players have done so they can rattle them off. Uh, and it does become a sort of dance between the, uh, yeah, between the athlete and then all the commentary around. I think it's not just to justify their existence. It's interesting. Mm. It's fun. Like I like when I, I'm one of the people who like when I will go when I watch like a baseball game on TV. I will turn mute on the TV and turn on the radio because the radio commentary is so much more interesting because they can't rely on the visuals. You know, right. um, I'm sure that's a great metaphor for something. <laughs> See, so for example. Like, if I had to write tomorrow morning, which I won't, but if I did, and it's funny that I should even say had to, but if I were to write tomorrow morning, I would probably think about that, what I just said, about the, turning the TV down and the radio up. I'd say, I know that that's a metaphor for something. There's a, a wonderful poem, which I won't get exactly right. It's really short. but It's something like, a screwdriver's made to turn screws. So when you use it to pry open a can of paint the lid on a can of paint, as you've probably done before, you're committing a metaphor. And we don't know what it is that we were made to do. So we live our lives committing metaphors. And metaphors are really interesting and really beautiful. And they're most interesting and beautiful. So the function of a metaphor usually is to take something that we know to help us understand something that we don't know. It's like, you know, love, which is this mysterious experience, is a lot like this. Whatever. But the kinds of metaphors I'm most drawn to are the ones where I know they mean something, but I don't know exactly what they mean. Just like that one. Like, I know that like turning down the volume on TV and turning up the radio, it's like applicable to something. It has something to do with life or relationships or I don't know what exactly, but I'm not going to worry about it. If I were to worry about it, I will probably only deform it to fit my own preconceived notions or my needs instead of allowing it to actually speak for itself in a full way. So instead, what I would try to do is write about it, leave it be for a bit, and then return to it later and say, does that have anything to do with this? And even if I don't know what it has to do with this, I might see a place where it could fit. So like sign language, um, it's never really explained exactly what how that metaphor is being used. There just comes a moment where I thought, I'm going to have that sign language stuff fit in here, and Jacob will have secretly been learning sign language, and it will be revealed in this conversation with Julia. So when we're no longer birds but ornithologists, we could look at it and say, well, it has to do with the fact that they don't have a primary like, language between them anymore, and each is seeking a, a kind of private form of communication or ways in which deficiencies can actually become strengths. Maybe, maybe not. I don't know, maybe those are partially right, maybe they're totally incorrect. But the, when the metaphor can kind of resonate with different meanings, first of all, it doesn't feel condescending to the reader, mm. um, which is a feeling that I think completely ends any kind of productive relationship or like moving relationship with the book. But also it then is alive for you and can, you can think about it over time. Quite early on in the book, uh, there's half a sentence or some, about something in Israel and the reader is filled with foreboding and there's going to, you know, something horrible is going to happen and there is, there is an earthquake uh, and earthquakes are in that area it's actually quite probable and, uh, with, um, but you somehow manage to make this in a very bleak way very, very funny there's one scene where the Prime Minister speaks to the cameras Clearly, this is a video meant to be distributed, and uh, and he's you know he's telling Jews to come to Israel to fight. But we know because we've read the memos from the Israeli you know, army that saying, 
what they really want are Americans as a kind of you know, shield. Because um, they, they don't speak Hebrew, they have no military training, they're, they just want them there to make Americans interested. <clears throat> but then he, so he, he holds this speech telling Jews to come to, to Israel. And everybody thinks the video is over, and he just looks into the camera, looks into the camera, and he picks up a chauffeur, which is a, a ram's horn. It's an incredibly rustic piece, and he blows in it. This is an Andy Kaufman kind of scene. This is just, it's almost probable, but it's, um, and, and, and you just go on and on with, of course, you know, Israel is, you know, they have this catastrophic, uh, earthquake and what happens? They're condemned by the UN. Everybody votes for. Did you enjoy writing all these bleak but you know funny things? Are you a sadist? <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't think I am. <laughs> um, I mean, enjoy is like a very complicated. To enjoy something is a complicated experience. Like some people enjoy getting whipped, you know. Like enjoyment is in the eye of the beholder. I enjoy things that are really funny, and I think that this is my funniest book, hmm. at least in the sense of striving to be funny. Um, I also enjoyed the moments that are emotionally really difficult. I didn't enjoy them in the sense that I was being ironic. I didn't enjoy them in the sense that I was laughing at them. They were really quite painful, but I enjoyed what felt like a kind of reckless truthfulness, you know, writing things that are hard to admit. And that felt, and I, by the way, I don't mean admit in the sense that they correspond to anything in my life. I mean admit in the sense that they feel true to me. And, um, you know, when I was younger, my first book, my first two books. When one is young, you don't know who you are in the world and you don't know how you're seen and you don't know what your value is because there's nothing to refer to. You know, When I wrote Everything is Illuminated, I didn't have a career. I didn't have a family. I didn't have a partner. I didn't have an income. I, had, I just didn't know. And I, I think I... I don't mean this in a like, way that is judgmental of myself, but I was interested in knowing, and I think I wrote the book informed in part by that interest. And it's a charming book. Like it sets out like right from the first page. It's, it's very charming. And that doesn't have to take away from its truthfulness, but it is a characteristic of the book. And I would say the same of my second book. And this book is not interested in charming. Mm. I think it may very well be charming. I just mean that I didn't write it from a position of wanting to know what my value was in the world because I became much more comfortable with my value in the world, not because I had a, books that were successful, but because I started to define for myself what success would actually mean um, because I had things that I could point to, like children, like a home, like an identity, um, a group of friends that I'd been able to keep for years. And I think I wrote this book for its own sake in a way that I did not write my first two books for their own sake. And I suspect that my next book I'll write even more for its own sake than I was able to write this book. Writing, doing something for its own sake is an inherently joyful activity. Like it is pleasurable even when the thing that you're doing is horrible. But there's, there's been research on this, and you ask people to fill in all the O's of a text. And the ones who get paid, they say it's not that fun. And the ones who do it for free, they think it's great. Mm. Yeah. But, uh, but I, I think this book really is about, uh, you know, it, it's about identity or, or, or loss of identity. It's, it's the source of all the major psychological problems, you know, schizophrenia or depression, it's your loss of self. And that's why I find it so scary, because it seems the main character, he's, you know, he's, he's a good guy, but he has no sense of self, he has no identity, his Dr. Singer doesn't help him at all. 
Um, okay, so it's Silver. His name is Dr. Silver, not Singer. It's just my Dr. Silver in life would find your mistake interesting and wonder why he's at. <laughs> Do you, are you, are you're married? I am, yeah. Your wife is the singer, is she? No. Okay. Do you know any singers? Not personally, no. I know, but I know someone who has the agency to sell singer sewing machines. That's probably it. Yeah. Um, I mean, my question is, it's in, you know, this is what's interesting about books, right, is why people have the responses that they do and how particular they are. The first reading I ever gave, um, a young woman, like 12, really young, raised her hand at the end and she said, how did you get that 85-year-old so right? Like you got his mannerisms, the physicality, the way he dressed, his interior thoughts. How did you know how to do that? Because you're not 85. The 12-year-old asked. And I said, how do you know that it was right? (laughs) You know, like, well, how do you know? Because I'm at least a man. I'm not 85, but I'm a man. Like you have more strikes against your, there are more reasons why you shouldn't be able to know it was right. And I, um, how did I know? She said, because I just knew. I said, well, I just knew too. And the thing is, neither of us are knowing something that is objectively true. We're knowing something that is true for us. And the connections that are made are really mysterious and really profound. James Baldwin said, I used to think the things that I felt most deeply most alienated me from other people. Because no one could be happy the way that I'm happy or depressed in the way that I'm depressed until I came into literature and I realized the things I feel most deeply, most strongly connect me to other people, just not the people I was expecting. Mm. So I can write something like this that is about, in many, many ways, where I grew up, Washington, D.C., the culture I grew up in, people sort of like people that I've known, and my two brothers who grew up in exactly the same way can shrug their shoulders and say, nice book. And then some, like, you know, 70-year-old Japanese woman can say, like, you told my life story. Um, So when you say it was terrifying that there's this character, my my immediate response is, why are you terrified? Like, why is that terrifying to you? Because I guarantee it's not terrifying to everybody. Mm. You know, like the terror, the the referent is the book, the terror is yours, Mm. right? And um, when I interview you one day, we can can get to the bottom of that. Because my, my day job is interviewing people from the business community about literature. What do you read? And I had one businessman who told me, he said he didn't know why, because he really loved Philip Roth. And he said, why, why do I identify with New Jersey Jews every time? <laughs> Which is you know, a cue to go on to, there's a streak of you know, dystopian... Uh, dystopianism in what you might probably call Jewish literature. There's a, you know, it's either counterfactual, like a plot against America, or it's set in some future, like J by Howard Jacobson. Have you read it? Um, the Flame Alphabet. I'm nodding, although I haven't. Right. <laughs> um, but do you really, and, and also, you know, um, uh, Lionel Shriver, The Mandibles. Uh, so many books and I, I'm, I don't know if this is a trend or if I'm just noticing it more. That you know, so many books about are about catastrophes, about how really existential crises. Somebody having problems with their marriage isn't enough. They need to put in you know an existential problem, and they'll want. Do you think about this, or, or how how did the Israel part come in? I mean, it's, it's like asking why chefs would, you know, talk yeah, about food but, so much. Yeah, like, but yeah. yeah, Jewish people have had a, more than their share of like catastrophes, mm. and the aftermath of catastrophes and the the sort of psychological resonances of catastrophes being raised in a climate in which catastrophe was either in the recent past or imagined to be in the near future, mm. and I think that that is. But it's also a little bit anticlimactic because it, it's not that great a catastrophe. Yeah. Well, it's also, I mean, in this book, it's all foretold in the beginning, pretty mm-hmm. much. Like, this is not a book, it's not a suspenseful book in the sense of 
you know what's going to happen with the couple. I think as of page 30 or something like that. You know more or less what's going to happen in Israel fairly early because I didn't want that to be where the reader invested his or her energies. Not in the I want to know what happens, but in like I know this is going to happen. Why does this happen? Like, why do these two people, and frankly, the characters themselves wonder it, you know? Like, um, Jacob and Julia get divorced. This is revealed very, very early in the book. And late in the book, Jacob goes to Julia's second wedding. And he says to her, you know, why did we get divorced? Like, why? what do you tell people? He, he sort of phrases it in this sort of cascade of questions. Like, what do you tell your friends? What do you tell the children? What do you tell yourself? Which she returns to him. And they each have a hard time answering the question. And that is the point of the book. Like, one kind of book could be written about, are they going to or aren't they going to? This is a book about, why does this thing happen between people? I don't mean divorce. I mean, why do good people who love each other, who want the best, who are willing to work for the best, find themselves growing further and further apart? Why does measuring take the place of effortlessness? Why does distance expand rather than contract? How can you like watch a child come out of somebody's body, but then have a hard time taking their hand as you walk down the street. And that's, I don't, I don't know. But I do know that a lot of people have read the book and said, I don't know either. But Jacob's mother has a pretty, um, uh, she has a speech at his wedding. This is at his wedding. And she says, there are no good and evil days. There's only evil and evil days. Well, that's, what you get. that's not exactly what she says. That's a maybe translation. She says, so in, in, in English we say in sickness and in health. Mm. Right? And, and she says there's only, it's sickness and sickness. Like mm. you move. Not, not, she's not joking. It's not like a, it sounds like she's joking, but you know, she's saying there aren't like miracles that will save us. And like a life with somebody is not, you're not moving from strength to strength and beauty to beauty and joy to joy. Like mm. it's a lot of, challenges, a lot of struggles, and the acknowledgement of those struggles. You know, Jews are good at not acknowledging certain things, good at repressing certain topics of conversation, which is why a lot of Jewish literature is written in response to that repression and can feel so, like, explosively verbal or sexual or just irreverent. You know, like, I'm going to say all this stuff that I didn't get a chance to say in my actual life. Um, I think in a way the mother um, Deborah is trying to protect them from that because a lot of people when they get married particularly I mean I know of a Jewish experience you become enamored of the institution you know and enamored by a kind of ideal that has been handed down to you maybe through media but probably more often through family because family has a, literally an evolutionary um, um, instinct or imperative to like it's funny I was reading I just started this book on the plane here which I really like quite a bit called um, Why Buddhism is True and the author is talking about he's an evolutionary biologist talking about the goal of evolution is to um, re- procreate you know to, to have genes your, your genetic line continued that is spun into us and we cannot get over that even if we wanted to and it can create all kinds of behavior that is not good for us, like wanting to eat donuts all the time, you know? Like, um, How do you get more kids by eating donuts? How do you get more kids by eating donuts? Because we evolved um, to want short-term pleasures, to want to, want to seek pleasures, and pleasures that are short-lasting. Mm-hmm. Because if we had a pleasure that was satisfying, we would stop seeking it. And um, if it didn't, if it wasn't extremely pleasurable, we wouldn't seek it at all. So that's why people don't have sex just once and say like, "That was great, I'm done," <laughs> you know. Um, so a donut is a fatty food, and we evolved from a people who didn't have access to a lot of sugars and fats. And so when we see them, we have a very, very strong desire to want it, and it it has to be a short-lived pleasure. And so he writes that Buddhism is in response to that. Like, is there a way of resisting the kind of evolutionary impulses 
in favor of what it is that we might, in a, in a deeper sense, if we could be attentive to our being, you know, might want. Um, so evolution didn't create the institution of marriage, but it did make us want to procreate. Mm. And procreation, at least in like American culture and American Jewish culture, happens in the context of the institution of marriage almost always. And so there is this like a culture that is like a funnel that leads all young people down it toward this outcome that is irresistible. It's irresistible on the genetic level. I'm not saying for everybody. I've obviously, I'm not stating this as, as a rule, but um, as a condition, let's say, as a human condition or a Jewish condition. Um, and um, I can't remember what the original question was, but <laughs> there, the the it may be that people like Jacob and Julia had less. One of the themes in the book is choice. Mm. Not to have a choice yeah. is also a choice. Yeah. When are choices available to us? And they have found themselves having gone down this funnel having made a lot of choices that they don't remember having made, if that makes sense. Or made by inaction. Made by inaction or made by others or made by cultural norms or made by inertia. But we need to make a choice to call it quit. But we have free will. This is how we got to use it. (laughs) So the audience has been nice. They've been okay. Extremely nice, yeah. Except except for the baby. No. <laughs> no, the baby was the best audience member. Un- unlike my president, I love babies. Yeah. I absolutely love babies. I would have another baby. If anybody wants to have a baby. Thank you, John. You have been listening to Lit House, the English language podcast from the House of Literature in Oslo, Litteraturhuset. Music by Apotek.